welcome to episode 65 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon. I'm a workplace psychologist and coach, and I'm the managing director of Work Life Psych. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Pilar Orti, but we also have a special guest this time around, Dr. Kevin Teo, a chartered psychologist and a lecturer at Birkbeck, University of London. Kevin is an expert in workplace well-being, and so it's really great to get some of his valuable time and his insights uh, for the podcast. So thank you, Kevin, for joining us. If you have any follow-up questions about this really big topic of workplace well-being and adjustment back to the workplace for those of us who've been working from home, please do get in touch on Twitter. Where you can find us at My Pocket Psych, or you can send us a much longer message via the contact form on the website worklifepsych.com slash contact. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know we love hearing from our listeners. So do get in touch with your questions, your comments, your feedback, whatever it is. As ever, thank you for listening. Pilar, hello, how are you? I am doing really well. Um, now, how are you? Because in the previous episode, you shared with myself and, of course, listeners about your, I wouldn't say new adventures working from home, <laughs> but the new stuff that you were doing. So how are you getting on? The technological disasters that we <laughs> outlined. Well, the third one happened, oh! which was great. Um, something something to do with my uh, desktop computer where my uh, where Zoom just stopped working 10 minutes before I was going to do a webinar. So I had to frantically unplug uh, my all this stuff that was plugged into it and then plug it into my laptop and try and run it off my laptop. And uh, that's probably took a couple of years off my lifespan, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, we joked about things coming in threes. So there you go. Uh, but it did get me thinking about how people are set up at home for those of us that are working at home, what kind of setup we have. And maybe for those, and I'm talking to these people all the time who don't have a great internet connection or who are dealing with lots of ambient noise and all of those things. And I really am relatively lucky to have this room in a fairly quiet environment and normally the technology works, but it did help me have a little bit more empathy for, uh, for lots of other people who don't have that. Yeah, I think I, I definitely take it for granted a lot of the time. But uh, yeah, it's not uh, if you're not set up, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. And uh, and so what are you working on at the moment? Have you evolved anything that you were telling us about or are you trying out something new? Um, not sure about trying out something new. I think definitely everyone I'm working with is getting a lot more comfortable with the online work. So I'm still doing a lot of coaching. I'm still running coach on campus programs across Dublin, London, and Barcelona. Um, I've still got the management training running in Barcelona. There's a nice rhythm to that. It's, it's once a month, but we cover a core management skills. So just, just the other day, actually just yesterday, uh, I was doing a session on delegation as a, as a core management skill. And often when I've done that in a room with people, that, that there's one way of doing it, but it, it really got me thinking creatively about how to increase interactivity when you're using video conference. Um, and I think they're going well, you know, based on the feedback from, from participants, they seem to be going well. Um, and obviously a big, a big theme that I, I'm working on and I'm not the only one, um, <laughs> is well-being. 
And, and that's what we're going to talk about today, actually. It's a huge topic. It's a really big topic, but we're going to look at it through the working at home, going back to work in the workplace uh, lens. And I'm really delighted that we also have a, a guest this time around and we'll have an interview with him uh, a little bit later on in, in the recording. But that's uh, Dr. Kevin Teo, who is an amazing and excellent uh, psychologist uh, with a particular interest in well-being in the workplace. Now, it was recorded quite some time ago, and we've only just got around to using uh, the recording, so it was well in advance of all of this pandemic, but it's still very, very relevant to what we're talking about today. So a uh, big thanks to Kevin, and um, we'll we'll lead into that a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you if there's any, uh, if you are planning any more webinars uh, that uh, listeners can attend. Yeah, so planning is the word. Um, <laughs> so I've, I'm running lots of well-being webinars for clients at the moment, and um, there are you know up to 100 people attending each of these on various well-being topics. And what, what I'm finding interesting is that there's quite an interest in the session on sleep because people's sleep is being disturbed by what's going on, and um, quite an emphasis on coping skills and um, effective healthy responses to what's going on at the moment. But actually, some clients are already turning their focus towards later in the year and already interested in how can we teach people some resilience building skills that we know they will need for the future. So rather than telling people while they're working at home, you need to get resilient, it's a case of let's introduce this stuff so that regardless of what happens in the future, we will be we will be covering these skills off. Have I got something in the diary that everyone can dial into? Not at the time of recording. I may well have by the time this goes out. Is that enough of a trailer for today? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Worklifepsych.com. Yes. And the Twitter and uh, show notes by the time this goes out. Uh, I'm still trying to find an optimal time to do that. And I'm still taking feedback from people as to what they would really, really like to hear about. But I, I think... Almost certainly it's going to be one of these well-being topics. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, well-being, I, I can be a little bit cynical about this topic. Um, I actually responded to a, one of those written interviews for a magazine the other day where, I, you know, I just write my responses to their questions and it kind of goes back and forth. And it was, um, I was talking about well-being in it and why it's important, but making the point that not everything badged as well-being is actually helpful. Mm-hmm. Not everything uh, that organizations are sold as being a well-being initiative or intervention has any evidence to support it. And maybe for some of them, the best we could hope for is that it's neutral, um, never mind having a positive impact. And some things can have a negative impact. So I, I think I'd like to preface the interview with Kevin and our brief discussion by saying that just because it's called well-being, whatever it is you're thinking of buying, doesn't mean it's going to help. And it doesn't mean it's going to help everyone. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be helpful right now in this in this context. So I suppose one of the most important things I would say today is to think carefully before introducing something at the moment in the middle of this pandemic that you as an organization think is going to help people's well-being. In fact, a really good first step might be to ask people ask your employees what they might find useful because not everyone's going to respond the same way if you tell them this is what we're giving you as part of a well-being initiative. Mm-hmm. 
But maybe let's start at, at the beginning. You know, the, the World Health Organization makes um, a very good point that well-being isn't just the absence of an illness or an injury. And while health and safety is very, very important in the workplace, well-being isn't just about removing illness. It's ideally a very proactive activity and it's about helping people thrive and flourish. So it needs to be holistic, I would argue. It's not just about the physical well-being, but also our psychological well-being. And that's improved by things that we might not think of immediately. What I mean by that is when you look at well-being in the workplace, frequently there's a team looking after it or an individual looking after it. And they tend to focus on bringing in people for training or initiatives. But actually, some really core elements of work contribute to our well-being, like job design. How Have the roles been designed in a way that can help people be their best at work? Or are they too demanding? Are they too ambiguous? Um, is there too much going on for one person to handle? Uh, management skills, they contribute to well-being. Or, as many people have found, they detract from well-being when managers haven't been given the skills to be um, an effective, fair, and um, uh, a manager that supports people's development and their well-being. So, I guess the point I'm making is don't just think about things like mindfulness and yoga and relaxation um, and actually not even think about stress management skills or building resilience. Think more broadly of well-being and think about some core building blocks in the organization that will contribute to well-being. Um, and if they're missing, there's no point in investing in a well-being initiative if you haven't got the basics in there. Yeah, I was thinking um, exactly around along those lines and remembering you mentioned you'd been doing some delegation skills. That's mm -hmm. the first thing that came to mind because sometimes, yes, the well-being, but what do we mean by that? And actually what we might be missing are some specific skills uh, that that we wouldn't class under well-being, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, that are, it's just going to be much more effective to uh, invest in those. It's It's the point I made to the team of Barcelona yesterday. Why are we talking about delegation now? Well, um, if you can't delegate, if you won't delegate, and if you don't do it well, you're detracting from your own impact, but also potentially your own well-being. And if you're not doing it well, you could be negatively impacting the effectiveness and the well-being of your team members. So it's not, um, it might sound like quite a dry topic, but it's quite complex. There's quite a few moving parts, but it has many, many useful benefits. And one of which, Is, is this well-being topic. So I'd encourage everyone to think broadly and holistically about well-being and also look at it through an evidence-based perspective. Don't just accept it at first uh, um, presentation and maybe ask for a bit more evidence and ask for a bit more um, data to support the claims that are being made. So think proactively. And that's something I think that's maybe many of us will have seen in reading Um, the press reading um, industry news about how organizations have responded to the COVID-19 crisis. We've seen some great examples of organizations who've been very joined up and organized. They had, you know, organizational resilience plans in place. They had, you know, trained managers in how to, to deal with the crisis and, and they'd explored flexible working arrangements. And then we saw other organizations who it looks like have been caught out by this and hadn't explored any of those things. And, and they found it difficult 
to adapt. And obviously, this is a global pandemic, and it probably wasn't on anyone's to-do list. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we can see big differences in how organizations are responding to that. And um, something I've seen, and this isn't a uh, an outright criticism, but it is a theme I'm seeing where there's maybe a lack of empathy between very senior people and the rest of the organization, where if the most senior stakeholders are dealing with this okay, then they kind of assume that everyone else is dealing with it okay. And I think something that's really useful for those senior people to consider is just because you are dealing with it uh, well, or maybe you're thriving because you like a challenge, uh, it's worthwhile, in fact, it's crucial to check in with the rest of your employee base to see how well they're coping with either working at home or remaining in the workplace to keep your organization going or provide an essential public service, which can really be quite difficult, stressful and risky at the moment. So don't don't use yourself, I guess, as the yardstick, as the measure for how well this is going. Yeah, that's been a real, something that's been really uh, clear as, a, as an outsider is that everyone has a very different context. And as, you, as you're saying, some people have just been able to adapt completely psychologically and uh, contextually also. Their, their homes mm-hmm. were kind of ready for that and their home life was ready for that, but uh, others haven't. And I think that's a really good point. And there's lots of things that are going on at the moment that could mm. impact our well-being. And it could be, as you mentioned, the working at home and, and dealing with domestic life while trying to work at home. You know, I've been beating that drum for a while now. Um, I, you know, when you're not used to working remotely, trying to stay in contact with people, um, when you are not feeling trusted that you're going above and beyond and you're working too much for too long. Yeah. You're losing any sense of a boundary between the professional and the personal. Um, and of course, you've then got sort of overarching anxiety about what's going on in the world. You've, you've maybe got a lot of, um, discomfort associated with the ambiguity because there's no end in sight to this. It's it. And then maybe you've exhausted yourself by engaging in that sprint I've mentioned previously, you know, working super hard in the hope that it will speed things up. And um, it doesn't, it just, you know, tires you out. So this context, I think, is really relevant when we think about well-being. I'm not talking about our physical health with regard to COVID-19, and I'm not giving uh, epidemiological advice here, but I am making the point that it's it's definitely something that even if you avoid this virus, you could end up unwell because of what's going on at the moment. And uh, so, yeah, broaden broaden the focus Think of well-being holistically. Ask people what they would find useful, and um, and keep an eye on it because, as as I've seen in my own coaching work, uh, people don't go in a straight line from A to B. They have good days, they have bad days. They feel top of the world one week, and the next time I talk to them, they've experienced some real setbacks, and the world looks like a very different place. So this is the time for managers to manage their team, manage the individuals, and really emphasize that communication, that keeping in touch. Uh, and looking out for people. So I'm, I'm going to ask a few questions and share um, a really useful resource I've come across. It's free, available online. And rather than repeat everything it says, I'll just signpost it in 
the show notes. But if you are responsible for the well-being of employees, whether that's a, as a team leader or you are a very senior stakeholder in an organization, if, if your people are working at home, how explicit have you been about the guidance and support that you've offered and provided? And how explicit have you been about your expectations um, with regard to their availability, their workload, productivity, however you want to put it? How flexible have you been about that stuff? It's worth thinking about that because you may be operating under some assumptions. And if you've still got people in the workplace, like I said, um, providing an essential service or they're keeping the organization ticking over, well, what support have you got for them? Because it may, it may need a different kind of support. Uh, on top of all of the health and safety regulations and the COVID-19 specific stuff, what about their mental health? Because again, as we've seen in the press, a lot of people are finding it quite difficult to continue to work in a shared workplace. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a hospital. It could be uh, places like coffee shops that are reopening and uh, other other places where um, the, the workplace is open and you're there. What about their mental health? What about their their uh, their well-being from that perspective? So a couple of questions there to to think about there and when it comes to return to work, not everyone's going to go back to the workplace on the same day. Not every industry is going to return in the same way. There's going to be phases of this. But what are you thinking about when you think about it? Uh, you, you're almost certainly thinking about the logistics, about um, staying on the right side of any regulations that are brought in. You're considering the impact on your organization's um, function and its efficiency. But again, what about the psychological impact? Many people have said to me, I've read lots of examples of it online. People or, who are working from home are already feeling a little bit anxious about the prospect of getting back into a commute and returning to the workplace. So how might you be able to support those people and how might you be able to deal uh, with those kinds of questions, those kinds of concerns? Pilar, any thoughts on, on, on that and any other questions you might add to the people who are responsible for this stuff right now? Yeah, uh, going just back uh, to people working from home. So we, we, I know you're already moving us into the next step, but there was something I saw that I think illustrates some of what you're talking about here. And it was a small business owner. Uh, I think he posted in, on LinkedIn. He's not one of my connections, so I can't remember who. He said, okay, from now on, everyone has Fridays off. Uh, and the reason was that they'd been saying to their people, you know, take time off when you need it. Uh, take a break when you need it. You don't worry if you need to be looking after your your home life. But what they found is that because everyone else around them was still sending emails, still working, everyone else around them in the online space, people weren't really taking that time off. So I think that th this is what they needed. And that was a real, very clear signal, I, th I think, also saying, look, you do need to be taking some time off during this. Saying just take a break when you need it is not really helping. So let's just say, okay, on well, Fridays, we're not working. So I thought that was a good example mm. of something that was very clear. Uh, and of course, for this company, it was possible, this specific example. But I think that clarity was, um, yeah, it was a really good example. That's interesting as well, because you can imagine how being told you should take some time out could be more difficult right now because in the old world, in the yeah. before, on your day off, you, you might have gone somewhere 
You, you <laughs> yes. might have gone into town, you might have gone to the cinema, you might have just gone out for lunch or something. But when we're at home, well, the temptation is to just let's see what's going on at work. And so maybe some enforcement around that could be a good idea for some people in, in some context. That's a, that's a great example of responding to what's actually happening yeah. versus what should be happening. So there's a, there's a really good guide I came across that I want to point everyone to. It was shared on LinkedIn, so I'll, I'll share the link to that there. But the authors include Kevin Teo, who's our, our interviewee this time around, um, Dr. Kevin Teo, and Professor Alma McDowell, uh, Dr. Joe Yorker, and, and Dr. Rachel Lewis, uh, who was on the podcast before talking about the research she had done into the dangers of business travel. And that seems like a light year ago. And also, um, who's doing any business travel right now? But it holds true for the future as well. But a, an, an incredibly capable um, and brilliant team of occupational psychologists have pulled together a guide all about looking after yourself and looking after your team and your organization through this crisis. It's free, it's available for download, and it gives some very good advice and reflection points in there. It reiterates something Kevin mentioned in, in the interview um, around the management standards for stress that the health and safety executive um, advocate, an evidence-based framework for understanding workplace stress. But also there's, some, there's advice in there about proactive things you can do to manage your own well-being, some reminders about what's important in there, nothing that will blow anyone's mind, but it's useful to have it all in the one in the one place, like getting exercise and looking after your sleep and so on. But then it, it really includes some stuff around psychological needs for leaders to remember about well, what do people need at work and how can you support that, the autonomy, the belonging, a sense of competence, using your skills. And then they have a very nice framework that they they share and it goes into some detail here. There's um, forms to fill out and evaluate your own situation. The igloo model and igloo covers individual group leader organization. So four levels of inquiry that you can look at when it comes to the well-being um, in the present context and then thinking ahead to the return to the workplace if that's if that's relevant. So I'll point everyone to that. It's really good. It's evidence-based. It's accessible. It's written by some, some really good practitioners. Um, so have a look at that if this is of interest or if it's your responsibility. It's a great starting place. So without further ado, let's, let's move on to um, the interview I did with Kevin. Uh, before this Recording, Pilar, we were trying to remember when I might have done this. <laughs> yes. so, uh, it was definitely, I think, towards the end of 2019. Wow. I had a really good run of people agreeing to, to take part in the, uh, in the podcast. And I think I had about three weeks of lots and lots of interviews. So it was one of those. Thanks again to Kevin for giving his time and his expertise. It was really, really nice to learn more about him as a person, as well as a psychologist, uh, because we'd been in contact online for a long time, but it, it wasn't until last year that we actually met face-to-face -face at, a, at a conference. And I thought I would include the interview in this episode because his interest is in well-being in the workplace. Now, Pilar, you had a chance to, to listen to this. What, what were your thoughts on what Kevin had to say about well-being? 
I'll give you uh, two, just because our listeners probably want to uh, listen to Kevin. Uh, one is, he's a listener. <laughs> that, that made me really happy when I was uh, uh, listening to the, um, to the interview to hear that he has listened to some uh, episodes. The, the one thing I really took was, as an individual, um, when looking after well-being, asking ourselves the question, is there anything I can do to reduce the demands placed on me? And I think that's a great question. And talking about uh, uh, some of the psychological needs, it gives us some sense of autonomy, which we might have lost, especially at this time. So I really like that question, but I will leave uh, listeners to hear Kevin answer it. Fantastic. Um, again, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Pilar. Really nice to be um, speaking with you again. Please get in touch with your questions or comments for us For, for Kevin, I'm sure he'd be delighted to receive questions about his own work, his own research. You can do that via the contact form on the website. You can find that at worklifesite.com slash contact. Or you can send us a brief message uh, or a public tweet on Twitter. And we're at mypocketpsych there. But for now, I'll hand over to myself interviewing Kevin. And uh, we look forward to bringing you the next episode in due course. Thank you for listening. So, Kevin, uh, hello, and um, thank you very much for making the time for this conversation today. Well, thank you, Richard, for the invite. And I'm uh, glad that after listening to a number of your podcasts, I finally get to be on one. So despite listening to it, you still agreed to come on. I like that. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Well, uh, no, that's not, that's not a fair comment at all. I'm generally chuffed to be here. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, listen, um, before we dive into your specialist topic, um, I think it'd be really interesting to learn a little bit more about you. W would you be able to share a little bit about your career journey to date, how you got where you are today? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, so I... Um, did my undergraduate degree in psychology, uh, and as many undergraduate students in psychology uh, kind of plan. Uh, we, I was hoping to become a clinical psychologist, and that was a track which I was working towards. Um, but as I was nearing the end of my undergraduate degree, I started realizing I needed to get experience uh, in mental health settings. So I was doing some voluntary work as assistant psychologist with different mental health charities. Uh, and the whole process was very, very fulfilling. Um, you know, I, I can't fault it at all. But what one things I, I really realize is that there are a lot of people with quite complex mental health issues uh, who are struggling with day-to-day -day functions, um, sometimes even with just existing. And that was just very draining. It was very draining for me um, because I think I just wanted to get as involved as I can. Um, but also something else which I, I quickly realized was that these were individuals who had struggled with the mental health, were now in quite a, um, difficult situations, but perhaps if appropriate support had been provided to some of them earlier on in, in, in their journey, in their pathways, that perhaps some of this um, could have been mitigated, could have been controlled. And, and um, so I think I started to look more upstream and thinking about, well, how can we support individuals at a much earlier stage. And then the more I was thinking about health and then the fact that we spend so much of our time in and around work that I think fundamentally if we can make workplaces healthier, 
perhaps even happier, that that almost is a, is a public health argument. Uh, and, and, and so then I started thinking about the world of work. Uh, and, and it's from there where I went on to the University of Nottingham. I did my master's uh, in occupational psychology there. Then I worked as a research assistant, a number of projects with the European Agency for Safety and Health at Work around this topic before eventually moving on to Birkbeck, uh, where I did my PhD. And, um, and, and was quite fortunate when I finished my PhD to um, carry on working at Birkbeck. So um, I'm a lecturer, I'm a program director on the MSc of Organizational Psychology there. And that's, that's my journey. Fantastic. So, you know, it's a familiar story, right? That there's an initial interest in a, in an area and then you have a personal reflection on that area and you maybe change your mind. Um, but you, you know, you, it sounds like you, you got stuck into that and, and had a, a realization that potentially it wasn't for you, but, but also that there was another way that you could apply your interest in health and mental health and well-being and, and ended up with this focus on the workplace. Definitely. And the irony actually is, as an undergraduate student, I was quite convinced I wasn't going to go into industrial or occupational psychology because um, I don't really see myself as a, uh, a corporate business-minded individual. So I thought, you know, uh, occupational psychology was all about making money, perhaps. Uh, as, a, as a young, naive undergrad student, that, you know, I just thought I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in that. Uh, but I thought before... You know, to be fair, before I rule it out completely, I should at least check it out. So I did a summer internship with a large law firm as a psychology intern. And, and basically, they were interested in, in two things. One was um, health and well-being of, of lawyers. And the second one is, is recruitment and, and selection. And I thought, actually, having I kind of went into that internship thinking this is where I'm going to discount um, occupational psychology, <laughs> left it, but left it going, this is really quite refreshing. And now, uh, you know, the, the fact that I thought actually this is about application of psychology in practice. Uh, and I sometimes with uh, social psychology, which was something I was also interested in, and with clinical psychology, of course, it's, there's a lot of application around it. But uh, what struck me about um, occupational psychology, organizational psychology, was that um, the, there was very little between, you know, trying to do something and then actually trying to get it done, per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that quite refreshing. Uh, and, and that actually just sparked my interest and I actually realized that, you know, what I understood about organizational psychology, occupational psychology was completely wrong. Uh, and actually, yeah, like I said, it, it pulled me in that direction, which is um, quite ironic considering I'm a, I'm a program director for one of these programs right now. <laughs> so that's not written anywhere on your profile. So you're going to keep that to yourself, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the stereotypical view of occupational psychology. I think, I think it's fair to say that uh, many people have uh, inaccurate views of what psychologists do full stop. And um, I commend you for going in to do that internship to, to just test your views on that. That's, very, that's a very evidence-based approach. <laughs> well, I think fundamentally, yeah. You know, we, we teach our students about evidence-based practice, uh, something that I try and do myself. And, you know, I'm quite conscious that we all we all have biases. I certainly have lots of biases. And I think part of, um, you know, personally, but also professionally, is about challenging challenging what I think and why I think that way. And if I get it wrong, then I have to hold my hand up and say, I got it wrong. And, and this is how and why I should perhaps change. And that's hard work, isn't it? Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, and I think it's definitely easier said than done. And, and I think many, in many ways it's about surrounding yourself, not surrounding yourself, but exposing yourself occasionally to people who you don't agree with um, their views. And I think perhaps um, in today's world, we sometimes don't do enough of that. 
mm. just to keep us on our toes to, to question, well, why do I believe this and why am I doing this way? And is there perhaps a different way of doing things? Um, and I think professionally, you know, where, um, I think about the, the work that I do, I, I very much believe in a multidisciplinary approach. I, I fundamentally, at the end of the day, sit within a university, but I see myself as a, an applied academic. So I think it's important to engage with um, organizations, with policymakers, um, with practitioners, with students, because, you know, I think you, you have to represent, you have to know what everyone is involved in and what they're interested in, because if not, I might just end up, um, yeah, I don't know, writing papers which get published that no one's interested in. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which defeats the whole purpose, really, at the end of the day. It, it, yeah, because it sounds like from your introduction, you're, you're very keen to make a difference, to have an impact. And you mentioned that phrase, you know, upstream, um, that preventative uh, approach. Um, you know, what was it that really sparked your interest in workplace health? What sparked my interest in workplace health? I think fundamentally... I don't know, actually. I just, I guess I've just always been interested in health, in, in well-being, trying to understand maybe the human body. Before I went into psychology, I had considered going to medicine. Um, you know, although it was, it was pointed out to me that I didn't have the grades <laughs> to go into medicine. <laughs> brutal, but okay. <laughs> Bru brutal, but uh, yeah, it's brutal, but I think I would have done okay. But uh, um, so I think, I've, yeah, I've just been interested in, in, in health and, and well-being of, of individuals. And I think just I don't really have a right answer, to be honest. It's it's sustained you, whatever that interest is. So you're, you're here several years later ju just focusing on it. Can you tell us a little bit about the areas of, of your research and, and what you've gleaned over the years uh, about workplace health? Um, yeah, so fundamentally, workplace health is, is obviously a very big big topic. Um, I look at more psychological health. Today, we talk a lot about well-being, for example. Um, and I think within it, depending on how you construct it, it will be things like burnout, be things like stress, uh, managing mental health, so um, depression, anxiety in the workplace, which has which have all become quite quite contemporary. But really, what I'm interested in is um, because of that preventative, the upstream approach. Um, I'm interested in, in psychosocial working conditions. So essentially, how workplaces are designed, how they're organised, how they're they're managed, um, and basically saying that because we spend so much of our time in and around work that if we can have healthier workplaces, then that's beneficial for for everyone. And I think everyone has a right to go to work and not leave work, whether it's you know at the end of that day shift or at the end of a career, being more unhealthy than they were when when they went in. Um, so I must think it's a it's a social argument, uh, a, a values based argument. Mm. As, as employers, as organizations, as society, that we have that responsibility to, to individuals to, to do that. Um, and I think actually, if I, if, if I go back further, some of that, those, those mental health placements, which I was doing, um, you know, I was struck by professional colleagues who were you know, really doing their best in the work that they were doing, but a lot of them were, were burnt out. Um, and I had patients who were saying, well, my healthcare professional doesn't really care about me. I'm just a number. I'm just a case. He or she doesn't really listen to me. And I think it's sometimes that's where it also struck me that, you know, the system wasn't supporting healthcare professionals um, to do the work that, that, that they were meant to be doing, that they wanted to be doing. And, and you have got professions, um, I talk about the legal industry, um, the healthcare sector, which inherently 
are probably quite challenging in healthcare. People struggle, people die. Uh, and, and so that nature is quite difficult. So then really you would want everything else around it, how that work is designed, set up for those who have to work in that environment to be supporting them in that difficult work and, and not actually be another hindrance within that. And so it's not a focus on helping people recover from burnout and stress as much as it is a focus on preventing that or minimizing that in the first place by looking at the risk factors and, and looking at what contributes to those unwelcome experiences. Certainly. And, and the irony almost is we started you know, our conversation talking about my journey and as a, as a psychologist, undergraduate psychology student, thinking about clinical psychology, which is often more focused on the individual. And I think it's quite ironic that I still, and I see myself as a psychologist, but over the, over the last years, I've become less interested in the individual per se, but more in the, the environment, the, the organization, the system, which that individual is situated in. Because, um, you know, you, you can do a lot of great work with an individual, um, counseling, coaching, um, and I'm definitely not knocking any of that because that, that's all really important. But, um, you know, we're, we're often shaped and molded by our environment. So I think it's quite important that we recognize that first and, and foremost. And I think often when we talk about workplace health, uh, psychological health, we, we don't recognize that mental health, psychological well-being, whatever you want to call it, it's often still seen as an individual issue. You know, you can't cope, so sort yourself out. Uh, get more resilient, get tougher. Mm. Um, but the reality is I do a lot of work with uh, in the NHS and, and when I talk to senior doctors with directors and they recognize the statistics that you've got about 40% of doctors who are burned out. And if you've got so many doctors who are struggling, you can't just say, get, you know, toughen up. Uh, and actually, maybe there's something in the environment where these doctors are in, and, and that's why they're struggling. And um, that, that perhaps alongside all that individual uh, interventions that we do to support them, we need to also sit back and look at, well, what are the organizational factors? What are the system factors which come into play over here? What can we do to influence that? And that, that values-based argument you mentioned really comes into this, doesn't it? Because, you know, if you have that individual focus and you're supporting someone through a challenging episode, but then you return them to the environment that sparked it in the first place, you know, that, that, that hardly seems ethical, does it? If, if the system yeah. they were working in was the reason they uh, became ill in the first place. Certainly. I mean, the analogy I often use uh, in, in teaching and working with organizations, when we talk about interventions, uh, you know, from a public health perspective, you talk about primary, secondary, and tertiary. Mm. Primary is essentially um, addressing at source, um, trying to remove whatever the problems are. Secondary is um, equipping individuals to deal with that situation. And then tertiary is about helping those return to that environment, so often rehabilitation. Um, and the analogy that I use is, is we talk about firefighters, something completely different. So for them, the, the, the problem the source of danger is the fire. So from a primary point of view, there would be, uh, this is a very simple example, standing outside the fire, pouring water on it to try and avoid having to go in because that's the, that's the source that's going to burn them. Um, the secondary one is giving them the right equipment, the clothing, the training so that they know what to do. That If they have to go in to pull someone out, that you know they're going to be as safe as possible. And then the tertiary intervention is, is the burns unit. If they get burned, mm. end up in hospital, they get sent back. But the problem is that if you haven't got the right secondary level interventions, if you keep exposing them to fire, 
you're going to take them out of a burn unit, you're just going to throw them back into the fire, and then we're going to wonder why they're getting burnt and end up back in the burn unit again. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, unfortunately, and for a lot of organizations, when we think about workplace well-being, psychological health, whatever we want to call it, we take very secondary and tertiary level interventions. Um, and when I talk to some organizations, they say we have got a well-being strategy. We've got a fantastic EAP program and mm. we, offer, we offer mindfulness training over lunch. Uh, you know, and that's a very simplistic perspective. But um, I'm saying, well, you know, that's fair enough. But are they appropriate? Why are you doing this uh, mindfulness training, yoga training, resilience training, coaching, whatever you want to call it? And I'm, like I said, I'm not knocking them. But is that appropriate for the environment which your employees are working in? Is that actually helping them? If they, if it is, then fantastic. But if it's not, are you actually addressing the underlying causes, or are you just throwing people back into fire. Yeah, that, you know, it's a discussion we've had on the podcast previously when organizations almost in a positive sense say, you, you know, you need to be really resilient to work here. And, yeah. you know, my, my answer would always be why, <laughs> why yeah. really resilient and is, you know, boosting people's resilience, um, not really the putting the cart before the horse. And, and is there nothing you can do about this environment that reduces the need to be super resilient and um, survive you know, the environment. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I completely agree with you on that one. And I think someone, I was talking to someone recently and, and they said, um, yeah, you know, if you're telling me I need to be more resilient, why would I want to work in this environment? It doesn't sound like a very fun place to work. Mm. Well, it doesn't sound like a very good place to work. Um, and I think you're also then placing the onus on the, on the individual. Um, and even if you move away, if you move, move away from um, a values um, based argument saying, well, that's the right thing to do, even from a, actually from a legal perspective, which is, I think, sometimes something many employers perhaps don't consciously recognize. The, the, the UK legislation is that we need to adapt the workplace to the individual. That's every employer's responsibility. Um, and it's not us adapting the individual to the organization. So, um, you know, if your environment is not appropriate, you are potentially opening yourself up to, um, yeah, you know, in a worst case situation, a lawsuit. Mm. You are, you are not meeting your statutory requirements. And and sometimes it is the wrong way around in terms of, you know, things that are um, made available, like lunchtime yoga or free fruit. They're they're not negatives, but if they're in existence instead of good job design or mm -hmm. good management behaviors or management training, well, yep. then it's, it's, you know, a good money after bad, really, isn't it? Uh, definitely. And even, even other things like um, having healthy fruit, uh, which is fine. Um, but, I mean, you mentioned lunchtime sessions. Nothing wrong with lunchtime sessions. Um, but one of the questions, then is if you're, if you're putting sessions on, um, how and when are you expecting people to attend? Um, are you expecting people to give up their lunches to attend? Um, you know, what, whatever that lunchtime session is. And is it fair and appropriate to do that? Um, you know, like I said, I, I do a lot of work with the NHS and there's a lot of good sessions running there, but I've got nurses who, who, who tell me I haven't got time to have a sandwich. Where am I going to find time to go for a half an hour session yeah. on whatever that is? Um, so how, yeah, you know, I think sometimes even thinking more strategically, uh, if I'm going to run a session, 
where am I going to put it? When am I going to put it? Is it something which should happen over lunch? Is it something that should happen during working hours? Is it something that should happen at the end of the day? Um, should employees be paid to attend that session? Uh, there's no right or wrong answer, but I think it's something that needs to be factored in. It's not just something that, look, this is what we're going to do. Mm. Um, because otherwise, you know, all good, in, it might, you might have great intentions, but um, the, the failing execution uh, might actually lead to a failure in the intervention or in the approach that is being taken. Uh, and then that's, that's a shame when that happens. And, and so context is really important there. It's, it's not about just working through a checklist, but, uh, considering where we're doing it, why we're doing it, what tends to work in environments like this. Um, and thinking about the people you're involving. Absolutely. If you don't have time for a lunch break, how are you going to attend any kind of a briefing or workshop? That's a really, a really good point. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. psychosocial working conditions. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are some of the, the factors that sit under that very broad umbrella that could maybe spark thinking among our listeners? Okay, well, I think the, the easiest place to start off with is the, the health and safety executive. Um, they talk about, um, I think it's, oh, you can challenge me. I think off the top of my head is six um, aspects of work. So how demanding is your job? Uh, so things like workload, um, long shift patterns, and that sort of stuff. Um, how much control individuals have over their working environment, how supported they are in their uh, environment, um, the clarity of roles that they have, um, um, the quality of relationships they have within the environment, and then the sixth one is change. So how is change being managed within the environment? And I think these are six kind of very broad um, domains that, that cover most aspects of work. So, you know, like I said, shift patterns, uh, bullying in the workplace, manager support, they'll fit into one of these six um, domains. And, and the reason why I mentioned specifically uh, the health and safety executives um, management standards is because there's a whole wealth of resources built around that um, from basically risk assessment checklists from guidelines on how you might want to assess or intervene around that, some examples, best practice guidelines. So I think it's a very useful uh, starting point for anyone who wants to explore a lot more uh, about psychosocial working conditions and, and perhaps how we might address some of these issues. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm going to put a link to the HSE website uh, in the show notes because it's something I refer clients to regularly. Um, don't yeah. reinvent the wheel. This is a good evidence-based approach. And even just working through that checklist uh, of, of domains, as you just did, you can think, wow, that, that might get ignored and that might you know, get neglected and, and people might grow quite cynical if those things aren't in place. And yet, well-being week comes around again. And we hear, you know, what we should be doing to be healthy, and yet the basics aren't in place. Yeah, and and certainly, you know, um, the HSE management standards, uh, you know, a, lot, a lot of the the approaches, and I'm sure uh, you would recognise this as well. Fundamentally, well-being is it's not a checklist. It's not that one week a year where mm. everyone eats healthy fruit, but it's a it's a cycle. Uh, it's not something that gets done. I always say to to, to students, to organisations, that fundamentally you. You talk about an intervention cycle, um, you do something, you, you assess whether it worked, you evaluate it, you reflect on what happened, and then you repeat, you repeat and you change whatever needs to change. So it's not something that ever gets finished. You, ne you never say, we've done well-being, it's sorted. 
um, because things change. You know, your, exactly. The, 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 the sector might change, your clients might change, your staff might change. Um, so, you know, as the environment changes, your well-being needs, the, the design of work will change. So, so that you always need to keep on top of that. And I think it's just uh, about being aware of that, really. So it's not just about taking things from different organizations and saying, look, everyone's doing that. We're going to do that and mm. saying, um, we've got, this is the 10 things that we're doing in our organizations, which is fine if you're doing that. But, you know, if every year or every X amount of time you look back and go, does this still meet our needs? Uh, if so, great, then carry on doing what you're doing. If not, then think about why that might be and what we might have to change. And, and yes, and yes, and yes, um, I, I agree with that, you know, 100%. And, and the conversation I, I find myself having with some organizations around well-being is moving them from a an event-based focus to process and thinking, mm. how do you reflect well-being in everything else that you do? How do you reflect a concern for people's health and well-being when you're hiring people, when you're onboarding them, when you're developing them, um, all the way through to when they exit the organization? How is that reflected there? Yeah. Just, just like you said, it's, it's, it's ongoing. You don't reach an endpoint. The, exam, um, the example I share is with your values. You mm -hmm. don't wake up one day and say, I think I've been compassionate enough and tick a box. And, and it's the same concern for, for well-being and health in the workplace that absolutely the environment can change, the context can change. And so you need to keep checking, you know, are we having the impacts that we're seeking to have or, or has this turned into a bit of a symbolic event so that we can say we had a well-being, um, we had a well-being week, and um, that's that sorted for another year. Yeah, and and uh, you know, it's it's understanding that wider context that, that you're in, and um, you know, if you think about now, we have uh, there's a lot of push now on on um, work-life balance and and being more aware of that, which I think is good. Um, and so, some organisations will talk about well, working weekends or uh, taking work home how you work with emails out of hours and that sort of stuff. And it's, it's one thing having a policy saying we're not going to do that. Um, but if you have a, a line manager or a, a director who is then shooting off emails at three in the morning or on a Saturday or on a Sunday, then, you know, what kind of, of behavior is that reinforcing? Mm -hmm. You know, you're undermining everything that you're doing. Um, I'm not saying that you have to have a, a separate work-life boundary and that that's completely distinct. I'm saying fundamentally, whatever is being decided, we have to think more, systemically in terms of saying well if this is what we're going to do well why are we going to do that what is the evidence for this and how are we going to get everyone on board because if only some people are doing it um, then it's just going to be a token thing which eventually is just going to die out and, and i think that's um that that can lead to cynicism among employees and, and rightly so if if the values say one thing and actually managers do something quite differently, leaders role model something quite differently, um, then you know, why would we believe in any of this stuff? And and the other I suppose experience I come across uh, regularly is yes, I know we say we do this, but just for the moment, because we're mm -hmm. under pressure or workloads, you know, commercial interests trump the values or the well-being focus, but you know we can we can stop this in a few weeks or a few months, and and of course it doesn't it doesn't work out that way, and it becomes the yeah. new normal. Yeah, no, and that's completely right. And if you move to say, uh, I think that the question then is, where is how important is well-being 
really to the organization. Because if well-being is quite important or very important, then decisions would be made around that. And that could be things about how many clients you take on or how many staff you have to try and um, account for perhaps when things are a little bit more dynamic, that you've got the resources that you, you, can, you can draw on. If you think about safety critical um, industries like the, the airline industry or the nuclear industry, alongside performance, safety is way up there. Mm. So if, if, if you know an airline is not happy with something about a plane or a pilot, they'll just ground the plane because they say, Do you know what, safety is important. So uh, we're not going to risk it. There's no compromise around here. And I think it's almost a challenge which I would extend to organizations to say, if you really mean well-being of your employees and your staff, you know, how are you willing to um, perhaps risk performance um, or your output or your productivity because you want to put employee well-being first? Mm. Yeah, that, that hierarchy is interesting when it's surfaced and yeah. discussed openly. Is there, is there one thing um, that you really wish organizations understood a little bit better when it comes to workplace well-being? Um, I, I think... It is that, without getting too complicated, is that actually it's not very complicated at all. Um, and the same thing in terms of understanding workplace well-being and what we do about it and what the factors which lead to it is, is, is really um, an efficient, well-run organization. Um, and, and therefore, it's, I think often it's then about, I, I think the one thing is, is it's about recognizing that context. So how do you understand what's going on? And, and that's really the, uh, the, the main, I think, the main takeaway point. Mm. Why are people struggling? What are the factors? And, and the way to go about doing it is often to well, look at what data we have, but talk to your employees. And that amazing thing of actually talking to people. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really amazing what you can learn from actually having conversations in the workplace. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm conscious that a lot of our, our listeners uh, won't necessarily have the organizational seniority to, to make changes. Um, so what can individuals do for themselves when it comes to their, their own well-being? And I'm conscious that's a huge question, but yeah. anything you'd recommend to most people to consider? Okay, well, I think um, you, there's a lot of resources, a lot of information around self-care um, along those stuff. So I'm going to talk less about that. But fundamentally, uh, sleep is very important. Uh, making sure you've got uh, exercising, um, uh, finding things outside of work to keep you engaged with. But because I'm going to focus more on the upstream and, um, stuff in terms of recognizing what your workplace is like and what your situation is like. Um, to put things very simplistically, we talk about workplace demands, so all the challenges, uh, difficult aspects of your work, and then workplace resources, um, things which help you do your work, which help you feel motivated. Uh, and ideally, what we want is to reduce the demands that people face and increase the resources which people have. So if you're sitting at your desk or you're within your organization, then the question is saying, well, is there anything that I can do to reduce the demands placed on me and that can be often quite difficult um, but if there is then great uh, and that might be a case of perhaps finding a, a different way of doing something about um, being having a different process or maybe using certain technology um, to to make things um, a little bit more streamlined so that reduces the demands placed on you uh, alternatively is to see well how can I boost the resources that I have available 
to me. Uh, and social resources is, is very important around that. So, you know, how can I get access to perhaps people who might help me do my job, who can give me information, um, but also the emotional resources. So how do I, you know, how do I find people who can support me emotionally, socially? So if I'm struggling that we can have a chat or we can have a complaint or we can have a laugh about something mm, around that. Mm. Uh, you know, what sort of other resources might I have within my my environment, how can I perhaps get more control um, in terms of the work that I'm doing? Um, and I think that's fundamentally, it's thinking about that, how can I reduce the amount of demands that I have? How can I increase the amount of resources that I have? And some of it will be work-based, uh, you know, actually changing things to processes, engaging differently with the people around you. And there could also be things in or outside of work. So maybe there's elements of upskilling that you could do um, if coaching could be beneficial, um, I know I was you know, talking about mindfulness. If some people find that useful, if that's useful for you, then great. But but really, it's then talking about well, if we want to prevent you from getting to a place where you struggle, is how can I reduce the demands that you face? How can I increase the resources that you have access to? Oh, that's a, a neat little equation for people to to reflect on in their own circumstance, in yeah. their own role, in their own context. That's really, really helpful. Um, Kevin, we, we've come to the end of our uh, sort of available time today. Uh, I just want to say thanks very much for a really interesting conversation. And I would hope that we could potentially have uh, future conversations like this as as the research tells us more in the future. Certainly. Well, thank you for having me on board and um, very happy to carry on conversing with you or anyone else who might be listening in. Fantastic. I'll, I'll share you a link to your online profile in the show notes. So if people want to find out more about you and the research that you've published, um, they'll be able to find out all about that uh, via the show notes. So again, thanks very much, Kevin. Thank you, Richard. Take care. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.